0: Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. If you're a founder of a B2C business and currently fundraising, I run a private newsletter where I share companies to past and future guests of the show that I think are interesting. If you'd like to apply to be on the newsletter, head over to theconsumervc.com slash startup. Thank you, Jordan Knopf, for introducing me to today's guest, Culture Lewis founder and CEO of Sunday. Sunday provides nutrient and soil health plans for garden and lawn care. Previously, Coulter founded Quinn Snacks, the successful farm-to-bag snack company. But in this episode, we focus on Sunday and lawn care. We talk about pesticides, why lawn care is overlooked as a massive category, and Coulter's journey as a successful serial entrepreneur. Without further ado, here's Coulter Coulter, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm
1: great. Thank you, Mike. It's really great to, to be on.
0: Really appreciate you taking the time. So let's talk about the very, very beginning. What initially attracted you to entrepreneurship?
1: I think I'm a little different there. I, you know, I've really been working toward the idea of, of building my own businesses and brands and products uh, since since I can remember. and I, I feel like every step I took was always in the back of my mind. I was like, okay, this is a good training ground for when I go do this myself. Um, So it wasn't like a switch that went off later for me. It was just kind of an assumption almost that I was going to go this direction. So I don't know. It's just a fire that was always there.
0: (laughs) Well, I know that like earlier in your career, you worked at IDEO, award-winning, famous design firm. Talk to me about like the impact that design and IDEO had you when you approached entrepreneurship or just business in general.
1: Uh, It's just such a fantastic experience to be able to have worked there and uh, the people and the ideas that come out of IDEO are just incredible. So it was, it was a formative time for me. And I think, you know, my approach to, to IDEO when I, when I got there was like, I'm here to learn. I'm not here to be comfortable. And so I pushed myself really, really hard while I was there to always kind of be going well outside of my comfort zone, um, trying new things and really pushing what I thought I was capable of. And I'm really glad I did that. It was hard <laughs> because of that, for sure. Um, and in a challenging time, but just when you're surrounding people like that with so much talent, um, and really, I think one of the things I learned an idea that was really fundamental for me is going into it, I had this notion that um, a really good idea carried itself. Uh, and I very quickly learned that you have to surround that idea in storytelling and meaning um, and, and really convey it in a compelling manner in order for it to get anywhere. Um, and that, you know, to be honest, it was alarming at first. I was like, well, that was a great idea. W- what happened? And I, I took drawing classes at night and I worked really, really hard on my ability to, to communicate verbally and present verbally so that I, I could make sure that, that these ideas or these these futures that I was thinking about could come to reality because I just, it's the worst reason to have them die. So I think that was, you know, I took a lot of my experience there, but that was one of the, the most important
0: things. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, storytelling so important. Talk to me a little bit about when you founded uh, Quinn Snacks.
1: Absolutely. So Quinn Snacks, it was a, a concept that my wife had. Um, and she, you know, for actually for a long time, was like microwave popcorn is such a disaster. I wish we could, you know, create something different because, you know, it's a snack that kind of had this good um, feel from our childhood. But they read articles about it continuously about how. Um, toxic it was for you and the chemical coatings and, and really it's a lot worse than people even know. And so she and I started working on well, what did that look like? Is that possible? And I think the way we got into actually launching Quiznax was by never taking a giant step. Um, I, I think we were both too afraid to say, okay, we're gonna go do this thing. And so we just kept moving forward. And I think we imagined that there would be some brick wall around some corner. We'd say, oh, you know, it turns out nobody's gonna do this part of it for us. And we, you know, this this idea we had was actually impossible. Um, and I think that imagination of that wall being there helped us to continue to move forward because we had this kind of out that we knew was going to happen, <laughs> but it never happened, you know, and then and then we were on Kickstarter and then, and then we were on shelves as, as Whole Foods across the country and and, and it became a thing and, and we kind of got swept up into it. So I think I would love to tell a story that, you know, we were dead set on that from, from day one and, and we had all of that vision in place day one. But I think it really just evolved over time um, and, and kind of swept us up in
0: it. So it seems like you, you kind of took, Very small steps just to see if there was almost like validating your idea.
1: We did. Yeah. So we did. I mean, so I'll give you some examples of that. Like we, one of the things we wanted to impact in that space is a a chemical coating um, on the bag called PFOA. Um, It's a lipophobic coating and it's it's actually like a a human toxin. It's found in most people's bloodstreams in the U S according to EPA. It's actually a movie been made around it. It's the same chemical using Teflon. Uh, And we're like, okay, we want to, that we're not going to make this product if that's going to be a part of it. Can we invent something different? Um, And so we invented and patented a new kind of bag coatings and use different kind of paper technology that's just around how it's processed and pressed rather than coatings um, and that was one of those hurdles where like that it may be impossible right and, and um, I think as we started it, it, you know we worked hard it was not easy to get through that but I, I think the fear wasn't there because we thought we maybe maybe there'd be some other dead end it allowed us to kind of push really hard uh, I know that kind of sounds contradictory but that's that's just I think that the emotional state we were in at that time and so we invented that bag made it had them made and then we started sending out test kits to friends and family of what we thought this product could look like. And that was with things being poured on top. So it was very different in, in a lot of ways. And we actually sent them flip cameras. If you remember those old kind of pre-cell phone video, it existed at the time people didn't really know how to send videos. So we sent them a video camera with it and we learned a ton from people actually trying the product. Um, and that, that was you know, a big part of the beginning of the business.
0: I mean, it's very uh, very, very creative, which I mean, makes a lot of sense you come from Ido, but, uh, but, but giving, the, giving the camera and seeing how they actually interact with the product and, and, and how they're actually using the product, that's, uh, that's, that's really cool.
1: It was hysterical because people would be like, oh, it was amazing. Thanks so much. And we watched the video on the bag, we're like ripped in half and like all these things went wrong. You're <laughs> we like, okay, so it's really important
0: we have a video. Then you can actually get some like real functional feed, uh, uh, feedback. That's, that's great. What made you decide leaving Quinn Stacks and founding this, you know, another amazing venture which is a Sunday.
1: Queen started off with this idea of changing that one product and innovating on the packaging and things like that. But what it quickly evolved into, and this is really around, my wife has incredible passion for agriculture and food and how it's sourced. And, and I share that too. Um, and so we, we quickly became a business that was truly about ingredients and how they were grown and where they came from. Um, so we spend a lot of time in field with our growers and farmers. My whole family goes to organic uh, corn growers farm every single year, and like it just became a big part of our life. And to be honest, like a wonderful part of our life too. I mean, just just to be exposed to that and, and to see that kind of a that 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 um, that balance and, and grace and, and connection with land is it's really beautiful. Um, and so agriculture was this thing that I became more connected to, and that's what got me into Sunday. Um, and I think people, a lot of people thought, well, this is a major 180 you've done here. You've gone from you know, making snacks to help people care for their property. And to me, agriculture was the connecting link there. Uh, and, and if you look at it, so yards at 40 million acres. Our, our third largest crop in the U.S. is tied with wheat. Um, it's 10 times more land than all the organic farms combined. So you really can't care about all of the environmental and human health issues related to agriculture and not think about this piece of it. It's a huge piece of it. Um, and it turns out in many ways, this this part is in a much worse position today um, than agriculture is as a whole. So there's a lot to
0: fix. It's really fascinating because like I've seen, you know, a, a few documentaries about um, organic farming. I never really paid attention much to um, actual lawns itself. And, and, and that makes a lot of sense in terms of the uh, even though it was shifting from, you know, foods to lawn care, you and your wife really had this passion about agriculture.
1: Yeah. And just a, a few data points on that, too, just to just kind of reinforce what you're saying is. You know, it, it is your own little piece of land. Like, it's a really fundamental thing. I think we've, over the past half century, have been taught to think about lawns as though it's some kind of carpet that you get chemically cleaned. It's not. It's alive. It's your piece of land. There's living dirt underneath it. And it's your responsibility to care for it respons- uh, you know, in, in the right way that doesn't put your family or, or the environment at risk. So there's something really fundamental there. And then when you compare it to agriculture, a managed lawn gets about five times more pesticides per acre than an industrial farm. And I think that's not, for what's fantastic when you're starting a business is that the business, the, the current market is in a position that people don't want, right? I, I think that if, if people, if I were to open up the book and show them all of the stats and facts of what's actually going on in their backyard, I think almost zero people would say, I'm okay with that. So there's, there's just so much here um,
0: and luckily the consumers consumer already in the right mindset. What were some of the challenges that you faced early on? It's, it's great to
1: have a really big mission and, and to want to drive a change. Um, if you can't make a product that's desirable and viable, you're dead in the water, right? <laughs> you can have all the good intentions in the world, but if people don't want to buy your product, then then, you, then you've got nothing. So a lot of the early work was like, okay, we, we have this thing we want to impact and change, but how do we make this um, relevant and exciting for people? Uh, in, and not just, you know, kind of the more close to millennial crowd, but the entire country. Uh, so we did a lot of time working on the developing the product, the approach, how we could do direct consumer in a different way, we tested. We spent a year testing with beta testers across the U.S. Uh, and getting, you know, video feedback and all of those same, same kinds of methods, just to get really, really granular with um, how people were not only like uh, tactically interacting with the product and how things were actually working, but how they perceived results. What you know, what what emotional response were we getting from them through the experience, and, and those kind of. Um, there's there's more more important kind of uh, more personal elements to it. So we spent a year um, digging into that.
0: That's awesome. And how did you think about customer education? Well, it,
1: it's interesting. We, we kind of have a different tactic there. Um, uh, you know, at, at Quinn Snacks, it was we had this kind of really fundamental learning. I had anyway. When you're sitting in a Whole Food, Whole Foods or, or a grocery store of any kind, and you're handing out um, samples of your product, and people are walking by and trying, choosing to buy or not, that's a really visceral moment as an entrepreneur especially when, like, the ability to pay your rent is dependent on this working, you know, like, there's no safety blanket. It's, this is very serious stuff. Um, and I, th- I think it, it gets pounded into you really, really quickly that if, if it doesn't taste good, if it's not meeting people where they are now and their needs they have today, it doesn't matter how great your supply chain is and how, and how important your mission is. Um, so I'm kind of going back to that again. But I, I just think that's, that's something I've learned um, very, very much firsthand and, and learned the hard way a lot of times. And so when we were going to that first year of developing a product, it really wasn't about like how can we convince people that their backyard is so bad. It was more about how can we make a product and experience that's so much better that, that self itself. Uh, oh, and by the way, it's, it's gonna not have any of those, any of those pesticides in it. Um, but most importantly, it works awesome. It's easy to use. You're gonna feel great doing it. Um, and so that's, that's kind of how we actually end up prioritizing our, our messaging.
0: So walk me through in terms of how you thought initially about how to actually cre- uh, create like a superior product.
1: Well, you know, there's one insight that drove a lot of the design of the website and the experience overall. Um, we talked to hundreds of people about their lawns and, and how they care for them today during that initial period and, and, and still do today. Uh, and we heard that people are in that aisle staring at those racks of pallets stacked high with, with sacks of chemicals. Um, what they're thinking almost universally is, I hope I'm not going to kill my lawn. Right. that's their level of confidence it's at zero um and so this was a big unlock for us We're like okay that's that's the, actually the major thing for us to address here is that um this is something that's fundamentally pleasing i mean caring for your property and, and seeing it get, get more lush and grow and be healthy and if you be a part of that is something that feels really really good but that doesn't work if you have no idea what you're doing and, you, and you're worried you're going to kill the thing right um and so and so that was everything we did um was designed around building confidence and giving people, um, that, that different kind of experience that is not, uh, I don't know what I'm doing and I'm probably going to destroy this thing to, I know what I'm doing and why, and it's going to work. Um, and so, so literally every single touch point we have at Sunday is around building that that
0: mindset. Got it. And was it, was it hard shift the mindset to consumer to actually uh, purchase online rather than you know through through your website rather than you know traditionally through store? I think there's definitely
1: some headwind there, right? And I remember early on, you know, pre-launch, we're talking to potential investors, things like that. You know, their question was, "Well, people buy this online. They don't now. Why, why would they in the future?" And and I don't have an answer to that I could I could supply data to look at other markets now. They transform things like that, uh, but it was a big unknown. If if you know, to what degree people be willing to buy this product online that they've always bought in the store? And so I, I think we we're still learning about how to make that transition happen. Um, you know, that said, we have had great traction so far. All of that feels great, but we are an infinitesimally small portion of this market today. Um, so there's a there's still a lot to be learned there.
0: Cool. That, that makes a lot of sense. Talk to me a little bit about your your fundraising strategy. I know you're you're obviously a serial entrepreneur. You had a successful, um, you know, exit with uh, with Quinn Snacks. But talk to me a little bit about how you approached originally fundraising. Why you chose to fundraise? Um, you know,
1: I guess the why is is pretty fundamental. Um, you know, there really wasn't an opportunity for us to, to self fund it and. Um, I, I believe like the additional, not just dollars, but energy and you know, just, just kind of brain power you bring to the table by bringing these people on board is so essential for your success. It's a big part of what, what Sunday is today It's people who are a part of it. And so for me, it wasn't like, maybe we shouldn't do this. It's just, I believe the kind of the, the biggest, the, this very large thing that we're trying to build requires that. And, and the strategy there was um, around bringing people on that are people I wanted to work with. And I wanted to call when things are tough that I, that I trust, you know, it's funny. I, I in a recent fundraise, I, I got that question. I got like, a lot of what are you looking for in, in a uh, financial partner? And I think the answer that they really want to hear is like, well, you have a lot of depth in this area and we'd like to have, you know, guidance in how to run this part of our business. And I, I, I don't answer it that way. I said, we have a really strong senior team. We know how to run, you know, the, the business today, but I, I need to have someone I want to work with long-term. Um, that I trust, and that can help me plan the long-term trajectory of the business. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of um, you know, what I was looking for in, in, in my partner.
0: In terms of what you're looking for in a partner, like let's t- dive in a little bit. In terms of like the long-term partner, obviously when you partner with a VC, it's a long-term relationship because they're usually part of the business for the next like seven to ten years. Are you saying that you like wanted a partner that was a bit more hands off because you had such a strong leadership team?
1: I so I my my metaphor for it is that it's like speed dating except you get married. So. <laughs> You know that I think you gotta. If you imagine yourself at that speed dating table, which I've never done, by the way, but, but I'd imagine you'd, you'd be really, really thoughtful if you were if you're putting a ring on the finger. And so that's kind of my lens it. I look at it. And you're right. This is a long term partnership, and we gotta make sure you wanna work together. And um, I think there's a capacity for the wrong people, and it's not even it's not saying bad people, just people who don't align with your mission, align with where this business should go, and they don't really understand what you're building um, to create an incredible amount of distraction and pain long term. So it's just making sure you're fundamentally aligned. It doesn't mean they're not challenging people. It doesn't mean they're not involved. I mean, they, I actually really enjoy it when, when you know, I get put to task. And people say, why would you do this? And uh, I think this is a better move. And, and being able to defend those positions makes me stronger, makes the business stronger. So it's not about that. I mean, it's just making sure that, that fundamentally we're all pointed in the right direction.
0: What were some of the challenges when it came to fundraising? Like- Let's see, I,
1: I think early on, there was a, a very, very real challenge in that I think a question investors need to, need to be able to answer for themselves is, why I buy this product? I think no, no, matter, my, no matter how much they want to be able to distance themselves from that kind of thinking and that's, that smaller kind of, uh, you know, do I feel this kind of thinking, it's still, they're humans, right? And, and I, I think the same way. And so there's a, there's a big piece of that that plays the decision-making. And this is, this is DIY lawn care. Right? And so if you think about that audience and their life position, this is not that relevant to them. And so in, in a lot of cases, it's kind of like they had to get over this idea of like, I would never buy this. <laughs> this isn't for me, but I, I, I understand the, the market and the average American enough to know how important big this is. Um, so there, there was a lot of discussion to kind of be able to get to that level.
0: Mike Duda was saying some of like the hard parts about convincing VCs was that, well, I live in... I have, I have a condo or I live in an apartment, I'm in the big city, I'm in New York or, or San Francisco, you know, this.
1: Not only are they, if they do have a piece of property, they have professionals caring for it. Um, but for the most part, they didn't, it was just kind of like, lawn care is not really a thing. You know, I don't, I don't is, is this really, is this really happening, you know? And I think, you know, in, in their realm and in their sphere and their daily, daily interactions, this is something that was completely invisible. Uh, so, you know, I had to be respectful of that to be able to provide enough data to give a really clear picture of what the whole country looks like. Um, in terms of lawn and garden and what people are doing. And, and the reality of it is this is a market that's as big as footwear, right? It's absolutely massive on a per household spend basis. Um, it's just that when you're in San Francisco, New York, that's not a
0: thing. Talk to me a little bit about your your launch strategy and you know how you also just thought about finding product market fit. Because again, I know I know we spoke about some of the challenges about how folks are finding lawn products in stores rather than online. Um, we'd just love to learn l- learn a little bit more about how you how you decided to tackle that
1: yeah so initially in terms of product market fit and trying to understand that we in our beta testing we did a lot of quantitative testing there as well to understand A, people who to try the product like you know did they understand the value of props did they want to do it again which for a business like ours um, our customers sticking around for multiple years is essential. That, that's that, that's the foundation of the business. That that was an important thing to learn. But in terms of just you know the initial marketing to a non customer to get them to understand what this thing is um, and, and have them say yeah I need that. That was something we did some testing with. We ran basically just Facebook ads pre product. Um, we had a, a you know a kind of placeholder website, and we'd run people through a really rudimentary funnel. And at the end, it was kind of like, sorry, it's actually not for sale. <laughs> but, but if you want to be part of a beta uh, test group, you can answer this questionnaire. Um, we ended up having 8,000 people run through this really long, almost 15-minute um, series of questions. We, and we learned a ton about what their sensibilities were, um, what parts that they saw through their experience on the site that, that, that you know, mattered to them, that they remembered, and things like that. So you know, pre-product, we were able to gather a good bit of understanding and intuition around what, what we needed to do and how we, how we needed to present the product. And then at at launch, um, you know, to be totally transparent, I think it's important to, to be honest about these kinds of things because I, I think entrepreneurs there's a bit of taboo here, and maybe there shouldn't be. Uh, we leaned heavily on, on Facebook, Instagram as a platform um, to build awareness and to, to drive um, acquisition and new customers. And it was uh, as a platform, it's it's incredible in your ability to iterate on a daily basis. Um, and, and get that live feedback around what's resonating and what's driving customers to click and eventually buy and what's not. That was our primary um, acquisition tool in our first year of business last year. And that was managed by myself and one outside Facebook buyer. So, really, really, you know, I, I think if we look back on it, we, we were underserving <laughs> our, our entire sales operation in, in a huge way. Um, but we still had a strong year and we, and we learned a ton.
0: What I think is really interesting and something that we talk about on the show quite a bit is. Um, when it comes to customer acquisition through Facebook and Google, um, it's right now, you know, you, you don't have those arbitrage opportunities that you did in the early 2010s. But I think what's interesting about Sunday Lawn, and this is um, a, it reminds me a little bit of a conversation I had with Paul Martino. What he was saying is that, sure, you can talk about how Facebook and Google, how it's now efficient, there's no arbitrage opportunities, but if you have a category that people aren't buying in that maybe there's that maybe the demand's high, but there's actually just not a lot of people actually buying, buying media on it. You can, you can still do pretty well. And yeah, absolutely does.
1: Yeah. I would say we're, we're definitely not selling mattresses, right? I think if you're thinking about the of hours going on the platform the level of competition and the level of unsustainability that that platform is at, um, for us, it's different. Um, that said, we're going after those same customers. Um, and so we're still seeing the same CPM pressures, um, the same, you know, cost per, per view kind of uh, pressures. Um, so I, I, think, I think there are more efficient channels that we're starting to unlock um, and, and maybe starting off in Facebook and kind of going this, you know, maybe brute force approach to, to, not, to not, you know, um, be sly and look for these uh, underdeveloped platforms to be able to market, but just go right down the middle of one that is fully developed um, is not the most efficient path. But I, I do think it's also kind of batting, batting with a heavy bat, right? If, if, we can, if we can find an acquisition there at a level of efficiency that works for the business, it's a really good sign. Um, and then, then you know, of course, you have to have the capital then to kind of push through that. But um, what we found there is is a, a lot of learning, very, very fast, and and proof that we were able to acquire customers um, efficiently on a channel that is very competitive. Um, so you know, that's really important for us to learn.
0: Absolutely. What's one book that inspired you personally, and one book that inspired you professionally?
1: I don't. I don't read enough. <laughs> I'm a- I'm going to come on and be totally honest about that. I, I, I need to read more. Um, it's just, I'm just typically so flat out. Um, I think professionally, so we we operate Sunday on EOS, Entrepreneur's Operating System. Um, this comes out of a book called Traction. So, you know, I'm very, very, you know, I've, I've, I've learned the hard way again through, through doing this for a long time, areas where I'm strong and areas where I'm not. And I think going into being an entrepreneur initially, I had so much excitement about it. I just thought every part of it, I would just go deep and love it and, and dig in. Um, but I think the truth is, when, when it comes to um, the operational aspects of, of running a business, um, you know, beyond providing uh, the passion, direction, the ideas, but actually the nitty-gritty getting a larger team aligned on long-term goals and getting there step-by-step, um, that's an area where uh, it doesn't come as natural to me. Um, and so Traction and EOS is a system we've implemented internally that puts process around that. and, and, and like make sure that this area where I'm not you know intrinsically gonna go deep enough on, we have uh, we had it built out and, and have it planned in place. Um, so I, I recommend traction for sure. A very pragmatic book. You know, it just just helps you put in processes that help keep your team point in our direction, helps makes meetings more effective. Um,
0: all all these kinds of things. No, that makes that makes a little sense. What's one piece of advice that you have for founders?
1: Um, I think this kind of relates to the, the also like the, the a book that was something that was um, personally inspiring for me. Um I actually I'm just about to finish it, but it's a book called This New Ocean. It's a definitive history of all space travel, right? It's it's a very geeky book. And I'm originally a mechanical engineer, so I, I love these things. Um, but what's really inspiring to me about this book, and it relates to advice to entrepreneurs. Is that it was, you know, the, the mission and the objectives and, and what people were, were trying to do was just so unbel- almost unimaginably impossible, um, and they just did it brick by brick, um, and they figured it out. And, and you know, I think in this case, there's a very real force of gravity that's holding you to the earth. But to be an entrepreneur, there's there's so many internal, emotional, and external forces that are trying to make you stay on the path you're on. It's much safer, um, and and I think to be able to break free from that, and 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 Take this thing that's in your imagination and make it real. And and like building a rocket too, there's really not that much room for major error. <laughs> you're in you're in trouble if, if the uh, if things go 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 south fast. Um, I, I don't know. There there's just some some um, some bravery that it takes to do that. I think being an entrepreneur requires sometimes too, and it's just really it's challenging. Um, so I guess my advice. Um, I, I sometimes um, say that it, it isn't. I, I know it's really popular to have kind of a rah rah go out and do this mentality. Um, but I, I will say, like people come onto my team that are more part of senior team, what I tell them is that we're going to have a moment where the smartest thing to do is quit. Um, and we're not going to quit. And we're going to keep going. And that's, that's what this is going to feel like at one point, I promise. So like this is really, really hard. Um, and, and if you're going to do it, I think you should be buckled up for that, to be able to push through those moments. Um, and so that's, that's my, my advice to, to, to try to understand um, the gravity of what you're, what you're starting. Um, and and so much of getting to the other side of this thing and being successful is about your ability to, to endure and push through um, the challenging times.
0: Absolutely, I think, I think that's a that's a great piece of advice. You know, I, I had another entrepreneur on that, that that said, you know, you're you're going to get no's so many times throughout your entire entrepreneurial journey, whether that's from investors, whether that's from other people about what you're doing, but, you know, also just focus on the yeses and, you know, even though you're always going to get in life a lot more no's than yeses, but, but, but focus on the positive in your mission.
1: I had a funny, a funny story on this, this, uh, this topic, a little bit of, you know, an investor I got a no from, which is not an unusual thing for me, but they wrote in their response, like, you know, you can, you can prove me wrong and come back and rub it in my face. And I, I, I was like, if I did that to all the people I've proven wrong, I would have no, not time for nothing else. You know, at at this point, I've I've had so many no's and and pushed past them and done so many things that people didn't think were going to work that I don't even, I I don't, I don't have any interest in that anymore. (laughs) So I I think that's a good spot to be able to get to.
0: Totally. Well, Coulter, this has been such a fun conversation. Thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Oh, thank you so much. It's been
0: great. I really appreciate it. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Coulter, and I really enjoyed learning about a category that I didn't really think much about since I don't own a house. But if you do actually own a house and want to learn more, go to GetSunday.com. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at Consumer VC. For all episodes, please visit the ConsumerVC.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.